Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the sequel for last week's amazing episode here at Feel and Film. I'm Aaron, and with me, ready to swing back into another great conversation, is my best friend and wisecracking co-host, Spider Patch. That's me shooting spiderwebs, but I don't think it came off that way. Well, I mean, I got to see you shooting spiderwebs, so your thwips had a lot better effect than it I should have just said thwip, 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 thwip. That would probably been... Probably. <laughs> but I think it's now been gotten across. <laughs> yeah. Instead of schnick, you know, with the Wolverine things and whatever. Definitely. Well, this week we are covering the second of two Andrew Garfield helmed, masked, maybe, Spider-Man films. This one featuring double the villains, more romance, and one of the greatest comic book tragedies of all time. I mean, really, it's bad. Just awful. And if I make it through this episode without crying, I probably deserve some kind of reward. So let's just get into it and get it over with, shall we? Sounds good. We like to start this show with our one-word takeaways, Patrick, and I'm going to let you go first. Ah, sequels. They can either make or break. I don't know if I said this in the last episode, but I wasn't as high on this entry as I was the original. Uh, full disclosure, I left this entry feeling about the same. A little bit more positive, because I knew what to expect. But... I think the only way to sum up my experience of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is the word shift. There's a uh, definite tonal shift in terms of how we see these characters. The city is a little bit brighter. The colors are a little bit poppier. The wisecracks are a little bit more wisecrackier. But there's also a shift, I think, in character development as well. We're getting to see a more comfortable Peter in his role as Spider-Man how he and Gwen are getting along after the events of the first film. And we're getting used to a wider angle lens of the city of New York. We're getting more of a glimpse to Oscorp and what it's bringing to the city, as well as the day-to-day stuff that Peter and Gwen, Aunt May, and all the characters that we're getting introduced to for the first time are dealing with. And there's a comfort level there. I think there's something that we... We didn't get from the first film because it was very much Peter Parker centric. And this gives us that wide angle lens, uh, to use a f- photography fun of the mythology that is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. We definitely get that in the first several minutes. The movie settles in and eventually for me personally got more comfortable and got me through to some of the bigger story arcs, the bigger moments in the movie with Peter and Gwen leading up to some of the more dramatic parts that I was really, really impressed with. Overall, I had a really good time with this. And uh, yeah, but but shift, I think, is probably the operative word for me when I, uh, when I walk away from this. Yep, I was sort of expecting this based on knowing your preference going into this one or your prior experience with it. And I think you maybe mentioned it on last week's episode, but we really didn't talk about this much. I mean, it was so positive and we were so high on that (laughs) movie that I don't think you wanted to bring it down any. And and you hadn't rewatched it, so you didn't really know for sure, you know, if it was going to hold up for you or not. Yeah. But I know that that came up when we talked about it 
before we decided to make these two episodes and I had watched uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 and you were giving me your thoughts on it. Um, I will say I disagree or I, I don't disagree. That's the wrong word. I had a different experience with this movie, um, but I'm sure we'll get into specifics as we go. My one word takeaway was devastating. I don't really have much else to say here, man. Um, I am an emotional person. I feel film. You feel film. But this is one that, for me, is incredibly impactful in a way that others just are not. Yes, there is hope in this movie. It's here, and it's beautiful when it comes out. But the path to get there is full of pain. Peter faces more loss. He's struggling with the challenge of how he can protect those he loves while doing what he knows to be right. His friends are there. He's fighting the very few friends he has or being separated from them without them even knowing. A man ignored by the world who is just craving some kind of attention and he will go to any lengths to obtain it becomes a villain and I can't come away from this movie thinking about anything more than its iconic, horrific moment. And honestly, the whirlwind of tragedy it includes. So between that moment and what I consider two incredibly tragic stories for our villains in this film, it's just where I land on this. I, I was wrecked, to be frank, watching this movie. Um, and very much, you know, impacted emotionally by it. So there you have it. It's a heavy hitter, for sure. Heavy hitter of emotion. Well, here is the spoiler warning for you folks. We are going to dig into this in depth, as we like to do on the show. So if you haven't seen the movie, we highly recommend you get around to that first. Or just proceed knowing that you are going to be spoiled like crazy. Because we are going to talk in depth about this. Patrick, you said this movie was a shift. And since we're only teasing in our one word takeaways and we're not giving any specifics, uh, why don't you start by telling me what it is that you consider to have been so jarring for you? And I, I was going to actually ask you something that ties into this. I was going to wanted us to talk a little bit about the departure from what you pointed out you really loved last episode, the really grounded nature of the film and New York and the realistic stunts of the first film. And I was going to ask you if the action sequences worked for you, what you thought about them, what you thought about the villain design as far as the way that they looked and they moved and they acted and such. Uh, and it sounds like you have thoughts on that. I do. And watching this, eight years, six to eight years after it comes out or after it came out, I have a, what I would consider a more mature perspective on it. You have a movie like the amazing Spider-Man that does something very different from what we saw with Sam Raimi. The only other comparison we had at that time was Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi, this high concept, beautifully comical comic book esque Spider-Man that felt like a video game. It felt like he was flying out of the pages of a comic book. And so that was very appropriate. And then we get this grounded, this realistic, this tangible character, this thoughtful Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy story that 
you and I can relate to in terms of being people that we would know if we were in high school. Maybe not people we'd hang out with, maybe we'd run in different circles, but definitely giving us that kind of teen angst vibe that we enjoy about high school movies in general, but about these two characters and seeing how the movie really centered around them as much as it did about Peter becoming Spider-Man. I did some digging and I realized that I think this came out two months after the Avengers did. That was a big summer for blockbuster movies. And I would imagine that The Amazing Spider-Man pretty much got forgotten because the Avengers was so big. And I've said this before, the Avengers is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie experience in the last decade. So watching The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and seeing how it opens up with Peter Parker skydiving, essentially, or Spider-Man skydiving from wherever he is coming from and doing these huge video game-esque swings from building to building that we don't see where they're actually landing. We don't feel a any gravity with him. He's very much like the video game that we've really come to enjoy, the Spider-Man game. I have to believe, Aaron, that that was influenced by what Marvel was doing. The success of the Avengers and that kind of style where it was bright, huge action sequences. I feel like there was a lot of influence that went into making this sequel. And so I can't fault it for that, if that was the case or not. I felt like I was watching Thor Ragnarok in relation to the other Thor movies, where there was a significant tonal departure, but I still had a blast watching it. I thought the tone of part or of Spider-Man as a wisecracker was a lot better here. And it was appropriate. I felt like it probably wouldn't have fit in the world that we got introduced to two years prior. And so once I wrap my head around that, and I saw this for what it was, a another high-concept action movie, I felt as though I could really appreciate it and enjoy it for what it was, and I did. There was a lot more about it that I really enjoyed. I thought his relationship with Gwen was a lot further along than it than I expected it to be. I think there was a lot of stuff going on with him graduating from high school and moving forward, his relationship with May, all these little things that were a nice organic continuation from what happened in the first film. If I had one criticism, I felt like everything felt kind of rushed. We had a lot going on in this movie. We had what I would consider four distinct plots that were kind of intertwined. We had the stuff going on with him and Gwen, the stuff going on with him and his parents, the stuff going on with with Harry, and then we had the stuff going on with Electro, and all these things were just sort of happening. And for me, I could have seen this story spread out into a third movie. I felt like they packed a lot of stuff into these two hours plus that could have been effective with a third entry that resolved a lot of the things that we were coming away with. But 
as an experience watching this, especially watching it several years after my first entry and get getting to experience the MCU as we know it, it felt more natural because it felt like it was on par with the Marvel movies that we've gotten used to. And so while I kind of disagree with that tonal shift, I understand it. And for what it is, I think it's successful. Well, I'm glad that you didn't hate it <laughs> and that you liked it a little better than you did the first time. So that's a positive. That's a good thing. I had a very different experience with it for sure. I mean, I can say we agree and that we both came away thinking there should have been a part three. But personally, I was on board for the part three that was clearly being built up to in that the reason we have so many plots going on, the reason we have Harry and Electro and such is because we are starting to build ourselves into this scenario of the Sinister Six at the end. There's a stinger at the end of this movie, frankly, is what happens where someone comes in and is trying to talk to, I don't know if it was Dr. Connors. No, that's the end of the first movie. But it it's where Rhino is there and they're going to try and create the Sinister Six. And so I really enjoyed that. I thought it worked very well. Uh, I left screaming, I want more. And I'm really sad that I didn't get it. I cannot disagree one bit with what you say about the shift because it is absolutely obvious. It's there. It looks different. It feels a little different, if not a lot different at times, uh, specifically with the swinging action and stuff. I think I'm just so into the game right now that I freaking loved it. And I felt like I was transitioning from playing the game into playing the movie right down to this final shot that I texted you about where at the very end of this, he's fighting Rhino. And I mean, it's amazing scene first. It's another, that scene alone is a great example of the Spider-Man that this Andrew Garfield, Peter Parker has become. And it is shown throughout. And what you're talking about more wisecrackier, as you put it, it's um indicative of him having spent more time under the mask. He's getting comfortable he's getting familiar with it right and we get that amazing moment where this little kid that he's rescued earlier comes out and he's like i'm gonna fight rhino because spider-man's nowhere to be seen and he puts on glasses and his mask and he prepares to fight and spider-man comes out and he he's does exactly what we want a seasoned experienced spider-man to be he says thanks for stepping up for me you're the bravest kid i've ever seen and then he takes this bullhorn and makes a big production of it. And he says, you know, on the behalf of the fine people in New York City and real rhinos everywhere, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put your mechanized paws in the air. There's no place like home. And I literally wrote in my notes in all caps, Spidey is back, baby, because that's how I felt in that moment. And we go anyway, I'm going a long way to say this, but like we go into this amazing slow-mo shot of him flying through the air and he's got his webs wrapped around this manhole cover and he's whipping the manhole cover at Rhino as he's blocking a missile with it, right? And I'm like, I do that in the game every freaking night, like when I fight a crime. And it's such a rush for me to, I guess, merge my video game playing experience with my movie watching experience. It felt so natural to me. And I think you're right. It does have a Marvel flair to it. It looks like the action that we see in a Marvel movie but it still felt more grounded to me than a Marvel movie. It, it felt closer in, I guess because it's in New York, like you've pointed out before, it's Spider-Man. And so we're not 
trying to save the world, right? We're not in some other country trying to learn where we are. It's him in his everyday spot with his everyday people. And there may be a lot of relationships, but they're ones that we're building upon. Yeah. And the thing about any entry, when you look at a character is that you're creating an, your own interpretation. And I think that's what I enjoyed was that we got Sam Raimi's interpretation. Mark Webb's was a significant departure, but still in my mind, consistent with an angle of Peter Parker, Spider-Man that I hadn't seen on screen. So seeing it revert back or I guess push forward into more of a Marvel esque kind of character wasn't inconsistent for me. It was inconsistent from its previous entry, but it wasn't inconsistent for the character. There was nothing about Andrew Garfield's performance as Peter Parker, Spider-Man that felt like he wasn't either of those two characters. And I think that that's a lot of credit due to Kurtzman and Orsi, the guys behind fringe and star Trek, what I consider hit or miss writers that they have done things that I really enjoyed and things that I don't enjoy at all. I think this was a hit for me, even though it departed from what I enjoyed as a favorite entry into the Spider-Verse. Wow, I didn't mean to say it that way. <laughs> into the Spider-Verse. Sure but, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's just subconscious, right? But I definitely didn't see any inconsistencies in terms of how Spider-Man was being portrayed. And you're exactly right, Aaron. I'm watching this and I'm going, I'm going to do that in the game tonight. Yeah, I'm going to jump off a big building and I'm going to skydive like that. And then I'm going to swing through buildings and take down some bad guys with a manhole cover. I felt guys, like it was going to be like, yeah. And, and guys that look like Rhino. That was my other thing about yes. this one. So in the first movie, I, I, and this is the thing, I feel that both movies work individually in the right way. This yes. is me personally. In the first film, Dr. Connors turning into a lizard man needed to look more grounded, more realistic, needed to look like a dude who was just basically being biologically woven and changed. He wasn't like magically transforming. It's not like Thanos like snapped his fingers and made him into something else, right? His body was being affected in a very mutated way. And we see a very similar thing with Harry. I, I mean, he's ugly as sin. Like, I don't like looking at him. It's gross looking at Harry as the Green Goblin in this. But it makes perfect sense when you see this disorder he's got. And you kind of put two and two together with you realize his body's being completely just mutated and, and biologically twisted and turned. So he's going to look grotesque. And then by comparison, I love the design of Electro. I think he looks amazing, like being this kind of created being of pure energy. I like the way that it was shown and particularly Rhino. I thought Rhino was awesome because it's just this dude in a gigantic mech that looks like a Rhino. And I was like, it, it, it actually ties into the first scene of this film, Patrick, where again, video game, he's like swinging in and busting up these robbers and he's like flipping them out of the truck one by one. And they're talking smack. And I'm like, dude, this is in my game. This is what I do. I fight dudes who've got like, I can't say it because spoiler, but they've, they've got some dudes who are in armor at some point that are basically like mechs that I'm fighting, right? And I'm like literally doing this exact thing. I'm swinging onto a truck with robbers. I am flinging them out 
I am stopping the truck. I am taking their guns out of their hands. And, and I guess for me, it's just so immersive. And I'm hoping that people who haven't played the video game will at least get the sense from my excitement here of telling you like this movie is what it's a very good example of what this game is also allowing you to feel. And I'm trying to say that as a positive. Like, I think that that's a great way to depict Spider-Man because if you can make me feel like that's what Spider-Man should be doing, then that's a success. It absolutely is. What I think makes the movie work the way it does is the fact that Take the villains, for example. I wouldn't have believed that Electro lived in the first entry's world because he felt too supernatural. He felt too unbelievable. Whereas you're right, Connor's morphing into the guy that he does, into the lizard, while becoming a lizard is kind of weird. The believability of it was convincing enough because of what we got to experience leading up to that moment. The opening scene of this movie is telling us this is the world you're going to be living in for two hours, a world where there are car chases and where New York is getting wounded but not broken, and where you have, in my mind, over-the-top goons (laughs) at the very beginning that wouldn't have worked in the first century at all, but they work well here because they offer a nice opening foil to Spider-Man and getting us introduced to that comfort level that you mentioned that he's able to flip around and move back and forth. And like the whole sequence at the very end of that, where he's trying to steal, I think it's the plutonium or something. He's trying to grab it back and he's humming his own Spider-Man theme. And uh, he uses his webs to pull the guy's pants down. Again, all these things are hilarious in and of themselves that would not have worked in the first entry and that's the thing is i'm glad that we have two individual entries yes i wish that we would have stayed with that but that's a personal preference if i walk into this movie having not seen the first i'm going to miss a big chunk of something that's very important his relationship with gwen but apart from that i think i would have been able to kind of be yeah i'm cool with this it's kind of how we felt with tom holland and his entry into the Marvel Universe didn't need backstory. We already knew about Spider-Man, so we're getting to experience that friendly neighborhood aspect that he brings. Garfield does the same thing here. Yeah, and I think what you're saying actually speaks to the idea that when you have sequels that do change the tone of your movie for whatever reason, and you may be absolutely correct, this may be a response to the success of Marvel, and so the studio is like, hey, we need to... You know, jazz this thing up a little bit or it may have just been what mark webb and his team thought was a good progression for the character because it kind of makes sense um either way they both work honestly and i just am a personally a humongous fan of the dialogue in both of these movies and the writing i think it's great i think it's spider-man it is peter parker and i'm in love with the guy now and so whatever it can't go wrong for me but one thing that i think in hindsight is that these two movies when you watch them back to back when you watch them in close proximity they do work pretty well. It's different when you're just watching them out of order or when you haven't seen one, you don't see the progression in the first movie into the guy in the second movie. And that's just what you see because you don't remember you haven't seen it for three or four years. Right. Whereas it's kind of more like, it's like the Marvel movies. You can 
watch any one at any time and they're all going to kind of feel the same. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of distinction. You don't have to watch them back to back to back to back every time to feel like you're getting a complete character story. And I think that in this one, they just are helped by going back to back or watching them in close proximity, especially because of the Gwen storyline throughout. It just, it's something that you just, it's hard to do in one chunk and then to go a long time without it. But so that may have helped your rewatch as well. Well, I wanted to talk about characters because there are lots of them, as you pointed out, and there are some great plots going on and stories. And one of the big things, so we have Peter's parents and his aunt, and I'm sort of throwing Aunt May into this group because we'll say relatives. So the film opens by showing us more background on Peter's parents, just as the first film does. This time it's kind of enhancing that story, showing more of what took place, how they made the hard choice of leaving him behind, and ultimately how they perished. And that's probably one of your bigger Marvel movie moments, actually. Um, is that plane going down, a big fight for the gun and the plane and the you know midair pushing the button or whatever to get the, the upload to go through? It's very Mission Impossible-esque. Um, Peter spends most of this film, though, thinking about how he was abandoned by his parents. And so I was wondering for you, like, how do you think the movie does portraying Peter both before and after he is aware of the truth? And does it give us a good sense of character progression for him in where he starts versus where he eventually ends up after he learns about why his parents made the choice that they made? And then kind of conversely or, or on the side of that, like, how does Aunt May play in this movie as a pseudo parent because it goes from a little bit of guardian kind of keeper that we see in the first movie to really a close friend it feels like in this movie and, and, a, and a confidant and someone who has to help give him some of that information in those speeches that kind of push him forward in a time of need well let me make a blanket statement and reiterate that there was a lot going on here, a lot of plots. And as a blanket statement, I wish we would have picked one and ran with it because all of these plots had me intrigued. So I'll say this. So when we start talking about other plots in the movie, just know that that's my line of thinking. In relation to seeing his parents and getting that information ahead of time, I don't know that we got enough time with Peter struggling with feeling that abandonment. We got a lot of that in the first entry, which I think made it stand out more with him, particularly in Ben. Like there's that great conversation that he has with Ben. Like if my parents are so great, yeah, where is he? He's not here. And I, I would have probably preferred to have kind of a callback to that moment to kind of remind us that, oh yeah, he's still dealing with this. The conversation with May, I think, was pivotal, though. And to me, I think this spider entry, Spider-Man entry, this is my favorite May because I think she has the most to offer in her relationship with him. Sally Field, I think, does a fantastic job as Aunt May, as a surrogate parent. And I like the conversation that she has with him. She says, look. I didn't tell you the truth because they left you because 
I want, I took care of you and I'm taking care of you. And the way she comes across is not like a dictator, but as someone who says, no, they left you with us. We became your parents, Peter. And I wanted to protect you from that. I wanted to protect you from the tragedy of all those things. And watching how he reacts to her and then the way he sort of has that epiphany <laughs> about Roosevelt and then discovers that I think it reinforces what she's telling him about the fact that her parents, his parents abandoning him as he thought, yes, they were protecting him, but even more so there's an emphasis on the importance that may has in his life. And we get pockets of what she's doing with her life. Similar to what the game is kind of emphasizing in that she is in the healthcare profession. She is helping people. Yeah. And that's her heart. We see that come out with her relationship with Peter in that, yes, she is a friend, but I see her more as a parent, Aaron, because she's not nagging. She's not telling him to be home. This is less about him trying to be home by the He's a college student now, or he's out of high school. He's graduated. But watching what he does from the conspiracy theorist, like lines on the wall and trying to figure stuff out to a more quiet, ah, I've discovered something about Roosevelt. I'm going to go check this out. I think had that not that conversation with May not happened, I don't know that he would have been able to work through the struggles that he was having. I think his pursuit of trying to figure out what happened to his parents was more about why they left him and less about what happened to them. And I think that shifted as the movie went on where he started becoming more sympathetic towards the fact that, oh, wow, my parents did care about me, but they had to give up something. It was sacrificial for them equally as much as it was sacrificial for me. And so I think there was progression there. Not enough time, I think, was spent with it, but I, I saw the progression. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really tricky because you need it. You need somehow to... I guess it, I guess it all ties in and that's part of the issue is like if you're going to have Harry and explain why this was trying to be taken away and you really kind of need to explain why the serum was gone and what was why that was done right and so but it is more about progression for Peter I think and I it does help him grow and become a different person and i think it's important because he is growing into an adult he's a flipping teenager who just grew and or just you know got superpowers and graduated high school dude has a lot of living to do still and i can't imagine living your whole life with this feeling of not knowing where your parents are or if they're alive or why they left you i mean that would be horrific and incredibly damaging to your psyche honestly no matter how loving your aunt and uncle are, yet that feeling of abandonment would always hover over you like a dark cloud. He needed resolution in order to move forward in his life. And so somehow we had to get that. And I, I'm glad that it shows us that. It's tragic, as I said, in so many ways, because we do learn that they died in this manner that they were trying to protect not only him but protect everybody from the world from osborne getting this and making a bio weapon essentially out of it and it was hard for me watching him basically say goodbye to peter 
when he leaves that message and he's he's talking about, you know, I have to disappear. I have to get as far away from here as I can. And as a father, you know, not seeing my boy, it's awful. Like There's nothing as important in the world to me. And he says something here. He says, but I have a responsibility to protect the world from what I've created and to protect him from what I know Osborne is capable of. And he's prescient. Like he's absolutely correct. Like this is exactly how things play out, right? Once it's known that Peter is bitten by a spider or someone is, like it's they're going after that. Osborne essentially is surrogate through his son. And I just love the the part in that line where he says, I have a responsibility to protect the world. It just it reminds me of what the the callback there for Ben's line in the first movie when he's telling Peter that his dad used to always talk about having responsibility and having to to do something about it. And so it just was like, man, that's great writing for me because it connected those two pieces. And so, I, you know, it was pretty strong for me. I think it worked. Um, but I agree. There's there's pieces of it. Like the airplane stuff, whatever. I, I could have honestly lived without knowing exactly how it went down. It's very Marvel-esque now that you put it that way. Yes, there's a villain in the cockpit who <laughs> snuck in and killed the pilot and has this plan to like jump out with the one airbag. It's very villain Marvel it, Mission it, Impossible. It's a come on moment. I mean, let's yeah. let's call it what it is. You open up the Sony Vio, which, by the way, I think is fantastic that there are no other computer brands out there that kids are using except Sony Vios. Uh, but you see, he, right before the plane goes down, he opens up that laptop and, you know, connects the network. No, whatever. Come on. It's fine. It's fine. I just. <laughs> I know. I hear you. But I, I do, I do like where it allows Peter to go. I like yes. the fact that he struggles with it throughout the film and it's really a big impactor on the way he approaches his relationship with Gwen as well because now he's like he doesn't want to go through this again I also love the line by Aunt May that you were talking about where she says you're my boy and she and dude her face in that moment I guess it's a possible connecting point essentially she's like in tears she's like no as far as I'm concerned you're my boy I raised you yeah and and dude and, and you're right like she's my favorite too because she sells that mm-hmm. I mean you realize that's that's the truth you are you are her son she has raised you yeah. and we get hung up on biology and blood and these, you know, like, Oh, you belong to me because uh, you came out of my womb. Well, if you're never there and you have no impact on me growing up in my entire life, then no, this is my mom. You know, this is the mother to me is the person that nurtured and raised me. Yeah. And so in a sense she is his mom and it's just, it's really powerful watching her and him kind of, get to that point of realization together and having that bonding moment, man, when they hug, Oh, it's just crushing to me. Yeah. Sally Field's performance in there is a lot closer to, I think her performance as Malin Shelby's mom in still Magnolia is a very powerful performance. I mean, that is clearly the quote better of the two, but I saw that character in Aunt May, that kind of empowering. I took care of you. I want to keep taking care of you. You're my only son. And I think that there's some real validity in that, in that we don't know or we're never told that they ever had any any kids. It doesn't sound like they did. And so for for her, the value of Peter being her surrogate son was 
equally as powerful as as her being his surrogate mom and and Ben being the surrogate dad to an extent when when he was alive. Well, uh, before we move on from this, I want to ask you a big question because I know that online when I was reading reviews for this and I probably shouldn't have because they're really bad and sad in my opinion. Many people have a big problem with this one plot point and it derails the movie for them. And and as we could go in a huge conversation about the importance of maintaining comic book integrity, but maybe we'll save that for our bonus content episode. We're going to be doing for our patrons this month where we talk about book to movie adaptations, because it would kind of fit well there. We should remember and, and talk about comics there. Essentially the idea of Spider-Man for the most part in Canon goes back to the concept that anybody can be Spider-Man. Anybody could have been bitten by this spider that was radioactive and gotten the powers that Peter did. And anybody with the right moral code who believes in justice and doing right could be Spider-Man. That's what it boils down to. But because we learn in this film that Peter's dad, Richard, made this serum with his own DNA and blood, and the only way that spider could ever have affected anyone in the way that it did is if it bit Peter. Otherwise, it's going to warp, mutate, destroy them, essentially. How does that change your view of the character, or does it matter to you at all? It doesn't matter, and I don't think the movie does feels that way either because there there are two things that i observed one was that scene with the kid at the end who comes out dressed as spider-man and peter says hey spider-man and he says thanks for for stepping in why don't you go take care of your mom i've got this i think what you said about the second part of who Spider-Man is, that moral code, that sense of duty and taking care of people matters probably more than getting bitten by a radioactive spider. The other thing that I think the movie or this universe emphasizes is the scientific smarts behind Peter. With the exception of his spider sense and his ability to maybe climb walls because of his fingertips, Everything about his character as Spider-Man is man-made. It's his moral compass doesn't come from being bitten by a spider. His ability to craft webs doesn't come from being bitten by a spider. So when you have this extraneous thing where only Peter Parker's blood or only Peter Parker can become Spider-Man, no, I think only Peter Parker... Peter Piper. <laughs> Only Peter Parker can do a couple of specific things that nobody else can. I think anybody can swing by scientifically engineered webs. I think anybody can do parkour. I think anybody, I say can do, has the ability, has the opportunity to, to do these things. Yes, very few people have a fast healing quality and i think that's where the superhero aspect comes out but my dad and i were actually having this conversation i didn't tell you about this but he's been going through the mcu with my mom and he said so what do you think makes a superhero have you guys talked about that on the show like is batman a superhero and we didn't 
I didn't stay long enough to have that discussion with him, but he brought an interesting, interesting point. Can anybody be Batman? Because what defines Batman, at least in part, is that his parents were killed, which made him, in a part, become Batman. But anybody can become Batman because there's more to him than just the death of his parents. There's more to Peter than just the death of Ben Parker. Those are moments that helped define him and helped him evolve to become who he was. But look, that kid's encounter with him fixing his wind turbine is going to probably make him potentially another superhero. Will he have Spider-Man qualities? He probably will. He'll have a good moral code. He'll be scientifically acute, but maybe he won't have the ability to heal quickly or to scale walls with his fingertips. And that's okay because superheroes are defined by more than just biologically altering capabilities. Good stuff, man. I completely agree with you. Doesn't bother me one bit. I also don't have the history with the comics in the way that many do for Spider-Man. So I'm not tied to any one particular version of the character. And it did not bother me one bit for the very reasons that you stated. That it's not about how he got bit and what the powers were that were bestowed upon him. It's about what he does with them. And it's always been about that. It's been about how you use it, no matter what level of power you have how you treat your responsibility to that and go forth and affect the world so um, i love it and i have no problem with it whatsoever villains patrick there are two big ones in this there are harry osborne also known as green goblin and there are max also known as electro and i was curious for you how do you see them in comparison to what we saw in the first movie with Ratha, who was played by Irfan Khan, um, unfortunately recently deceased, um, and then Donner, Dr. Connors, uh, the lizard? Those were the opponents then. These are the opponents now. You know, I feel like there are a lot of similarities between them, but I, there are definitely differences as well particularly in the way that they become superpowered and then in the way that they strike out with those powers, the reason for them, I would say using their powers. And I just wondered what you thought about how the villains were portrayed in this film. I thought that Electra looked good, but I thought that he was kind of wasted. He felt like a means to an end for Harry um, he came across to me a lot like Jim Carrey's Riddler did in Batman Forever. Not like hokey or over the top necessarily, but the way in which he became who he did was almost like by accident. He had an obsession with Spider-Man because of that one encounter. So he was a little bit crazy and totally just fine for, for this movie, you know, made sense in this movie. And he was fun to watch. I thought Jamie Foxx seemed to be having a fantastic time playing Electro. I loved seeing him, though, in his hood, looking all sinister, to use the word appropriately. I thought Harry was akin more to what we saw in Dr. Connors from the first movie, this gradual emergence of this character that was fueled by this venom or this, this serum kind of thing. I wanted more Green Goblin. 
and didn't get enough. I think I got a lot of Electro with not enough payoff. I felt like his demise was a little too wrapped up, a little too perfect. It was fun to watch, but the focus seemed to be split in kind of an uneven way. And when we get to Harry, who I think is a more compelling character, I don't feel like we got enough of him and his relationship with Peter in a way that felt very heavy. Uh, but as characters, I think they came across believable in their own right. And, um, you yeah, know, they were, to me, I think they were on par with Connors in terms of being like compelling villains. They're, they're, they're probably at the same level in terms of like, yeah, those are cool villains. Nothing like over the top, like, wow, like what we have with Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2, but still they were serviceable. So I, I guess I probably responded to them a lot differently then, because for me, I thought that they were great and they're not the best villains I've ever seen on film, but they are both empathetic in a way that I really, really enjoy. And I felt like they were a good building upon of what we saw with Dr. Connors. Dr. Connors was this sympathetic villain who you know, turns himself into the lizard sort of by accident. He's doing it with noble purposes in order to stop his boss from using this on a whole bunch of veterans. And ultimately it unfortunately takes him over and kind of controls him and a rage comes out. Here we have two men who directly have to be considered in context to their relationships with Peter in one way or another. One in relation to Spider-Man and the persona that Peter has made for himself as he saves Max. There's that great line when he first meets him and he saves him. And it's a really awesome encounter. It's the encounter that we all cheer for. Spider-Man just saved a pedestrian. He took the time to shake his hand and tell him, you're not a nobody, you're a somebody. You're my eyes and ears out here, okay? He saves the man who no one ever notices. And we never really move on from that in most stories. We don't think about the effects of what our superheroes do. It's like people who kind of got upset at one point when they were like, what about all the destruction that the Avengers cause? And rightfully so. I actually like exploring that. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. They probably killed some people, didn't they? Or Superman, right? When he was fighting. And so I enjoyed getting to explore the concept, the idea of like what happens when someone becomes obsessed with you because you told them a thing. And it's not even manifested in a bad way at first. You know what I mean? That's the thing is the powers that he gets give him the ability to then accidentally almost discover what it's like to be loved. We, we see that when he meets Gwen in the elevator, he's explained, he's like, man, she remembered my name. It's incredibly important to this guy. He is on the outskirts of society. He's treated like trash by people. And so then we get the awesome, what I think is awesome, Times Square sequence with him coming out and the action is awesome. The dialogue's great. And here he is looking up. And for me, it was really powerful, like him seeing himself on all these screens, not just like 
one man, but he's he's everywhere. And I, I was I thought to myself, I was like, what would that feel like to have craved the attention that he he wanted so badly from anybody, and now he can get it from everybody, and then to watch that be turned upon him, where Spider Man's trying to talk him down, like a hostage negotiator would, only to have them shoot at him and to have the the crowd chanting and cheering for Spider-Man to take him down. Like when you're watching in real time, the creation of a villain and it's not because of one thing. It's because of a lifetime of bullying. It's because of a lifetime of being forgotten and society, not treating him like he's a real person. And he, I feel like he's trying, you know what I mean? Like in, in that moment to me, he is, ready to talk to Peter. Peter's like, let's go somewhere else. Let's go off alone. Let's talk. Patrick, in another world, the police don't shoot that shot. Electro goes with Peter and he's a sidekick. And I fully believe, fully believe that if that happens, Max is given the attention that he craves. He goes on a completely different path using his powers, but he attaches himself to someone, Harry, eventually who wants to give him attention and wants to tell him that he is needed. And ultimately that is for destruction. And he sure. just doesn't care at that point. So for me, it's like a really great villain creation. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the same thing with Harry. I, I don't like Dane DeHaan as an actor. I'm just going to put that out there front. So like, I have to get past that because he's not one of my favorites. And so it's just, it's always a block for me, but I like him in this as well as any other movie I've ever seen him in. I think he does a great job, but when you realize like these layers of his character and you start to understand, like he wasn't sent away to boarding school because of, you know, he's, he's sent away and then his dad doesn't tell him that he has this deadly disease and he comes back and his dad dies (laughs) and he learns that, oh yeah, by the way, you're about to die too. And you're nothing essentially. And he has to fight for everything he wants as well. He's almost kind of in a similar boat. And there's this incredible tragedy mixed in of the fact that we get one beautiful scene, man, where Peter and him are talking on the beach, skipping rocks by the lake or whatever. And my heart was just thumping because I was like, dude, Peter's got a friend. He's got a legit friend he can talk to about girls and his troubles and They have a history together, even if it's not recent. And Peter needs this. And obviously Harry needs this. And what happens? Perry's like, I need you to do me a favor, man. Come on, bro. Like, I just need you to do me a solid. I'm dying. And Peter won't do it. Like, essentially, Spider-Man won't do it. And yeah, he has his reasons, but that's what makes it compelling to me is it's complicated. There's a, a reason to do it and a reason not to do it. And there is a perfectly viable and valid reason why Harry goes the path he goes. Because otherwise he's going to die and nobody gives a crap. And everybody is ready for it to happen. So what does he have to lose? And you put that with a Max and you get these two guys and it's like, oh, I don't know. I It just really, really works for me in this movie and it had me completely invested. Well, I, I like their team up. I think that it was appropriate to see them both together because they come from a similar motivation not to kill Spider-Man, although that's a nice little byproduct, but because they're angry because they're not getting what it is that they need. What I see though is in a similar way, there's a consistency in their mental state. Both of them are coming from a place where they're not necessarily all together. 
they put themselves in a position, particularly Max, where he seemed prime to become obsessive. And I understand his motivation. I'm slightly sympathetic. BJ Novak, I guess, who his bo- who's his boss, really helps fuel that, especially when he says, I want you to stay here. There's a problem. You need to fix it. And he's like, but it's my birthday. Why do these guys get to go home? And he's like, because you're special. And it's, of course, very sarcastic. And again, it, it's what reminds me of Edward Nigma from Batman Forever. He's getting kind of misrepresented. He's getting misused. And he looks at the world and the one person that could fix it in terms of making him feel better and puts all that weight on the shoulders of Spider-Man. And this is what's great about that scene that you mentioned, the, the Times Square scene. When he's talking to Peter... Peter says, hey, man, what's going on? He says, don't you recognize me? I said, ah, maybe. And he goes, my name's, you know, my name's Max. And he, <laughs> I'm a little scared at this point because I'm like, oh, I've seen this happen before where he's going to get angry because like, you didn't remember me. You said you remember me. And I love how Peter responds. He goes, oh, yeah, I told you that you were my eyes and ears. He validated that moment. And then he says, I didn't recognize you because you look different. I believe that. I didn't think that. Peter was trying to just talk him down from the ledge. In that moment, I think what stood out to me was the fact that, as you mentioned, there was a genuine desire to see this thing get diffused. It wasn't him, Peter, trying to just say what needed to be said. But at the same time, I think that Max was just kind of primed to experience that. If it wasn't Spider-Man, it was going to be somebody else. And it became Harry. Green Goblin, because Harry did exactly what you said. He gave him the attention he needed, but he validated the motive that he had because he was now fueled by a desire to get rid of Spider-Man. And Harry was like, sounds good to me. Let's do it. So not only are you getting validated by your motive, but you're also being validated by your abilities and your value to Harry Osborn who you both want to do the same thing. You both want to end the life of Spider-Man for different reasons. And so I think as villains, they were a little cramped for me, but their team up made a lot of sense. And I like the fact that they eventually came alongside each other, that, that he wasn't fighting two individual types of villains, similar to what we got in Spider-Man 3, where there was a lot going on there as well. There was cohesion in this one, Aaron, and I think that it works a lot better when there's a cohesion between your villains if you can have them team up, as opposed to having villain A and villain B both wanting the same thing but coming at it from two different angles instead of working together. Yeah, no, totally, totally agree with that. Well, the other main thread that flows through this and is undeniably the most tragic of all is the on-again, off-again relationship Peter has with Gwen Stacy, the love of his life, at this point, at least. How do we see Peter struggle with the fight between being normal and fulfilling his responsibility? And do you think that he makes the right choices? Or do you think that he or we would change some things if given the chance? And I know we're going to dance around our connecting points. Let's just say it right up front because 
They're both Gwyn related in some form or fashion. I got to tell you, I, before you tell me what you thought about this, I want to say, again, I love the dialogue in this movie. And there are so many things that Gwen says that define how her character is in moments of incredible tension and incredible uh, stakes. The things that she says, the things that she says when they're together and trying to figure out their relationship just one-on-one. I love her character, man. I just, I just do. She's easily one of my favorite comic book. This has become my favorite comic book romance. I guess I would say Um, it hits me and maybe I'll get to it later, but in a very personal way, probably is part of the reason, but um, you know, a villain hasn't, murdered the love of my life thankfully so not quite that way but um i you know love everything about what she is representing here for peter in his life and also just who she is for herself and what she represents for humanity as far as what she promotes her speech her graduation speech is amazing and the way that the dialogue is done where we get to see the first part of her speech there towards the opening of the film and then we get the the second part of the speech bookending this film, much how we had the Richard Parker, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, it was a Ben voicemail um, earlier in movie number one, I think is a great use of that. And I think that that's where Mark Webb shines. And I think that his ability to direct the romance through this storyline while these villains are being there is incredibly, incredibly, um, it's a hard line to walk, Patrick. And I don't know that anybody else could have done it any better and given us the same romantic storyline. And that's why I find this movie special because even if it suffers a little bit as a superhero movie, because of who the director is and what he is able to focus on between those two characters, I get what I just don't feel I would ever be able to to receive in that same way through any other form of comic book movie that like I've seen so far. The through line of both of these movies is Peter and Gwen. And that's what's always going to make me love this duet of movies. Not necessarily more or less than the other entries that we've seen but it will be my favorite because of the fact that we get that relationship. Gwen is not a damsel in distress. She is strong. She is capable. She is smart. She has no problem talking back to Peter. There's this fantastic moment where as Spider-Man, he is arguing with her on the street next to a cop car. And he's, she's like, I'm coming with you. I've got to do this. I know how to do this. I can do this. And he's like, no, you need to stay here. She's like, no, I'm coming with you. And he goes, fine, come with me. Can you shut that trunk? And right when she grabs the trunk, he, you know, flips her with the, with the webs and he takes off and she goes, Peter. And then she covers her mouth like, oh gosh, I don't want to give up. Just little things like that. But then there are other moments where she is incredibly quiet in her words, incredibly pointed with her words. The, the dim sum dinner, her saying, I think you're amazing, Peter. 
and she essentially reiterates what Emma Stone said about the character that I'm in love with Peter Parker. I'm with, I choose to be with Peter. I think Spider-Man is noble, but Peter is who I'm, I'm, I'm with. And it just goes to reinforce this notion that I want them together, Aaron. In spite of what I know is going to happen, I still want them together. And I get that there's this faction of people that exists who love MJ, whatever iteration she is. The Spider-Man game is one of those. And I feel like the relationship between Peter and Gwen is forgotten because it ended so far ago, so far away, so far in the la- in the past you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, I think the comic that of her demise came out in like the early 70s. So we don't get the, that story. We're not familiar with that. We're familiar with MJ. And I think what this movie does is it allows us to stay with them for just a little bit longer to enjoy this relationship that our generation of audience would not get to otherwise because we're not familiar with that. We don't know the story of Peter and Gwen and comics like Spider-Man Blue really highlight that. And I think that if you like a movie like this, if you like that relationship, I highly recommend that six issue limited series that really does give us the quiet, poignant, delicate relationship that uh, that we see on screen with Peter and Gwen. I love it. I love, love, love their relationship. And if I could find a Gwen Stacy pop that's not Spider-Gwen, I would be a happy camper because I would put Peter and Gwen, Peter Unmasked and Gwen, right next to each other in a similar way that you have your La La Land pop sitting next to each other. That would be well, my La La Land pops right there. You know, that's kind of like a Gwen. If you think about it. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. <laughs> I mean, if we want to merge our universes. <laughs> but like, no, this is legitimately something I thought about. And th- those are my Spider-Man game pops, to be fair. But I thought about a connection to La La Land when I was watching this and how it's similar where we have a Gwen who is wanting to go off to England to experience this thing. And Peter's like, I don't want to do that. I need, I need to be here. Sambas and Tapas is in New York. Like that's the only place I can open it. I can't go to England with you. Right. And he wants to relent and say, he's going to go with her. But like, she also knows that like, this is where he belongs. And she tells him at one point that there's, there's so much dialogue and I'm sorry, I'm going to quote all of it because I love it so much, but there's the point where you're mentioned where she says you're Spider-Man and I love that, but I love Peter Parker more. That's worth it to me. You can't lose me. And then she says this, which I found, this is one of the like many moments I cried during this movie. I'm not even going to try and lie. If we can't be together, who does that work out for Peter? And I was like, damn, okay. Like that's the dialogue that gets me in this movie because it's like, that's raw and that's real. And that's true. Like, that's not overly fantasized type of movie type stuff. That's the reality is if we're not together and we're both miserable, what is the point? So, so what if it's, what is she saying is I don't care if it's for five minutes or if it's for 50 years, Peter, as long as we're together, that's what the point is. But the way she says it is so impactful. And then 
it, it's like every iteration of this, it, she is always there to make the explanation for him in a way that he needs to hear it. And even Harry mentions that when he's in the elevator with her and he's very briefly meeting her after he's been with Peter and Peter's talked about her and how he's frustrated. Right. And he even says, he says, but that's why Peter needs you, right? To help him make his choices clear. And I'm like, this is exactly what Gwen is. Right. And when she is leaving him, there's, this was almost my connecting point. I mean, there's so many, I could have just put the Peter Gwen relationship, but when she leaves him that voicemail and we get this whole big scene, it's like this one final breakup. Cause this movie, people will describe it in their stupid little dumb reductive reviews as like, Oh, this movie is just one back and forth breakup sequence of get breakup, get back together, breakup, get back together, breakup, get back together, get off it, whatever. But there's like this one final breakup quote unquote, where she leaves him a message and she says, it's time to let this go. And that's not because I don't love you. It's actually because I do. And so there's this back and forth, this pull for both of them. And this is that moment I was asking you, like, what if, right? I love these scenarios. And specifically when it comes to comic books, what if, what if Peter does not listen to that voicemail, swing to that bridge and web, I love you on it. And swoop down, pick Gwen up, take her to the top of that bridge. It is a beautiful moment. And I was in tears watching it. I had to pause because I was like so affected at the moment. Because she says, or he's telling her that he agrees and, and with her comments from earlier. That there's no point in being together. Or there's no point if they can't be together. And he says, you're wrong about us being on different paths. We're not on different paths. You're my path and you're always going to be my path. And I know that there's a million reasons why we shouldn't be together. I know that, but I'm tired of them. I'm tired of every single one of them. You know, I got to make a choice. Gwen, I choose you. And dude, when you know what's coming and you watch that, it is so awful and it, even gets followed up by the very typical Mark Webb romantic cutesy line of dialogue where he's like, I'm going to follow you to England. I'm just going to follow you the rest of my life. They've got crime in England. They got tons of crime, tons of crime in England. Jack the Ripper's in England. I'm going to go after Jack. It's a perfect Peter Parker, Spider-Man romantic moment there on top of that bridge. And it sets up perfectly everything that we see from that point forward with Gwen's character being put on the line yet again, right? We get to see her character as a romantic partner and we get to see her character just as a person who is a human, who is a smart scientist and wants to help save the world because she's in a position to do so, you know? Um, and it's, it's great. I think everything about this relationship is phenomenal. And I never would have thought before revisiting these movies that I would come away being like, wow, Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker and Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy are my favorite comic book couple like of all time. But I can tell you with a straight face that right now I that is what they are. And it, and it blows me away and I'm still reconciling it. So uh, just, yeah, whatever. I love them, man. It's one of the great comic book relationships in history. And I'll just continue to say, if you don't know a lot about it, find out more. Because as I'll talk about in my connecting point, it change the world of comics well since you said that i think 
that's a perfect time to go ahead and segue into our connecting points. And I think I will go first just because maybe mine is a little bit sooner in the timeline than yours. Just, just slightly. Um, no, it's not really just slightly. It's like half a movie sooner than yours. <laughs> but, um, we all know what yours is at this point, I think. <laughs> Somebody was going to talk about the death, of, the death of Gwen Stacy, and I'm glad it doesn't have to be me. Listen, my connecting point, Peter, Peter, <laughs> my, I'll take it. I'll take my it. My connecting point, Patrick, <laughs> is Peter and Gwen reconnecting after their first breakup in this movie. And I think, I feel like this is one of the same things I said during our other episode where it was like, hey, this is a scene that could have been in 500 Days of Summer. Mark Webb's um, great movie. The scene is Peter and Gwen and he sees her from afar and he hasn't seen her in a while and it's dark and he just starts walking across the street when he sees her. He is overtaken by her beauty and by the fact that she's in close proximity to him when she's kind of avoided him for so long. And he just is in a trance as he's moving towards her and the world has faded away from him. And we don't need special effects to show us this. He's moving. He almost gets hit by a bus. He just completely casually sticks his hand out. Like, please don't hit me. He's not even thinking about the bus. He just is walking across this totally crowded street. People are yelling at him. Like, what are you doing? He is making a beeline to her. It is a Mark Webb moment, and the whole thing, man, is aided by one of my favorite songs of all time. And it plays in quite a few movies that I like. The song is called Song for Zula by a band called Phosphorescent. And if you have never listened to the whole thing, like, look it up, listen to it, you'll know what I mean. There's also a moment, very hugely sweet, memorable moment in The Spectacular Now, that uses this uh, song as well, that I remember and so it's got like a connecting point literally for me built in but they get together and they start talking and Gwen is explaining like I don't want this to be complicated we're just going to be friends we're going to keep it simple and the banter that happens right here is so good Peter's like well I want to establish ground rules if we're going to be friends he says that laugh that laugh is off the table. You've got to figure out a more annoying laugh. And so in Gwen Stacy fashion, she tries this absolutely horrific, guttural, terrible laugh. And he's like, no, that's too adorable. I, that's, it's got to be worse. that to be more. It's got to be worse than that. And then she's like, well, no, I got ground rules too. And so they go back and forth and she's like, you can't tell me I look amazing. And then Peter's, well, you can't, you can't touch your nose like that. No nose rubs. And Gwen's like, oh, but it's allergy season. And Peter's like, I'm out. And then he goes, he turns around and he's like, all right, well, well first we get ice cream and then, then I'm out. And it is just so good, Patrick. It is so specifically capturing that feeling between people. When the chemistry you have and the feelings, the love, the attraction you have for one another is something you can't fight. It's undeniable. And you're clearly 
trying with your head to say, no, I shouldn't have this relationship, but your heart is overriding in that moment and making it very clear the connection between the two of you means something. And I love it. I thought it's incredible. She asks if he's been following her and he's like, just once a day, sometimes more. And he's like, I just want to make sure you're safe. And then he says something that really hit me. And he says, it's the closest I can get to still being with you. And I was like, gosh, man, it's they're flirting, they're bantering. And yet throughout it all, their real true feelings for each other are coming through, especially Peter, who has had a hard time trying to make it clear to her how much she actually means to him. And I just, I think it's, it's what I love about romantic movies is moments like this that sell me hook, line, and sinker on that relationship. Because that's what it was, Patrick. Like, this is the moment where I am so completely enamored with the two of them that it's, it's no longer negotiable for me that Gwen dies. Like, we will not let Gwen die. Everything in, our power we will do to save Gwen. Gwen cannot die. (laughs) She cannot die because this is the relationship and this relationship has to go on. And if you've ever felt the loss of a relationship, it doesn't mean the other person had to die. It just means that other person that you had the same kind of connection with is now no longer in your life in that way. It feels like that person died. It feels like that person is gone forever. And when all you have to hold on to is to remember these kind of moments, I think that that's what makes them special. And I know that I have them. And so that's why it's my connected point. That's a great one. And it really does serve as a primer for getting us emotionally ready to be undone at what I think is probably one of the most tragic and greatest comic book movie moments in history. Because as I preached and will continue to preach, this changed comics for Ever. The death of Gwen Stacy, my connecting point, not specifically in this movie, although depicted in this movie, but for the role and the character of Spider-Man changed the way comics were looked at. It changed the way Spider-Man was viewed. And what I want to do real quick is just I want to read an excerpt from a website called comicbasics.com. And there's an article called Why Gwen Stacy Had to Die that brings up some good points. So they go through the summary of what happened in the comic. If you're not familiar, Green Goblin takes Gwen captive to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge. He starts fighting with Spider-Man. Then he throws Gwen off the bridge. Spider-Man, seeing the love of his life fall into her demise, takes aim with his web shooters and catches her. He brings her back up to not only find out that she had perished during the fall, but that Gwen Stacy's death was a result of his web breaking her fall and neck. I don't know if you noticed this, but watching her get caught by the web and hearing a snap, that was the uh, moment for me. Oh, yeah. You hear it. And you see it in the comic book. You see the word snap. Like, this is bigger than the Thanos snap to me, okay? It is the snap heard around the world because it changed things. And the website 
the article talks about the death being widely thought of as doing the following. Considered the moment when comic books left the more innocent Silver Age and entered the darker Bronze Age, it's shown that even though he had his best intentions in mind, Spider-Man cannot stop all tragedies. At the time, it was considered unimaginable to kill off such an important character. This story opened the floodgates of main character deaths. Interestingly enough, the snap heard at the side of her neck in the book is not noticed or touched upon by either Spider-Man or the Green Goblin. This tiny detail has led to endless debates over the years as to whether or not Spider-Man knows, acknowledges, accepts that it was him that killed his girlfriend. This moment in time caused a shift in the Spider-Man character. Suddenly, he knew and lived for vengeance. No longer was he the go-lucky superhero that children grew up loving. It was this moment that he, quote, grew up. Now, some significant differences in the movie. First of all, she wasn't on the Brooklyn Bridge. She was in a tower, and she fell, and her death was the exact same way. But the impact of that for Peter... This is a credit to Garfield's performance. The way I watched him mourn over her, we're not told, we're not given anything but context clues that he caused this, that his webbing snapped her net back and broke it. Because I think I, I watched it. This is sick. I watched it a couple of times because I don't remember it. So I didn't remember it specifically, but I felt like she, I thought she hit the ground. And that impact plus the combination of the, of the webbing ended up causing her demise. But the way he weeps for her, the way he mourns for her reminded me a lot of the way that Kalel responded after at the, you know, near the end of Man of Steel. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen that. But here's where I think the real impact takes place. And that's at the funeral afterwards. This is great cinematography. We see Peter staying at the gravesite in his suit, and he's standing there just over her grave. Camera pans back, and if you're not watching the whole time, you miss it, but you see the weather change a little bit, his clothes change, and then you see them change again, and his clothes change again, and then finally, you see him on the ground, I think in crisscross applesauce or something, in a different set of clothes, and it's gotten to be winter. And so we've seen that there has been a time lapse. But I think what Web and Company are trying to do here is let us know, not that he literally stayed there the whole time, but that he is in this deep state of mourning that he will never leave Gwen, even in death. And I think it sets up this fantastic moment where he's listening to her speech, and it's so perfectly poignant and appropriate for where he's at that she talks about how we all have to have hope even in tragedy and it's that tragedy that leads us to hope it's so incredibly powerful and it makes the moment at the very end where he comes back and not rescues the boy but essentially takes over and now we have spider-man he's back as you said I think that his grieving period is over, he's moved forward, but we're left with this legacy of Gwen Stacy, not as a sweetheart, as someone to be rescued, as someone who was a sidekick, but someone, Aaron, who was his equal, 
and a perfect complement to who he was. And that's why I think I love their relationship is I look at his relationship with Gwen in comparison to MJ. And granted, MJ has had a nice evolution of her character as well. But Gwen has always been an equal to Peter. She's never felt submissive to him. She's never felt less than. She's always brought something that allows him to feel complete and let her feel complete. And I think I'd like to believe, because we don't get to see any more entries into this universe necessarily, but I'd like to believe that in the same way that he was haunted by Captain Stacy, he's now going to be in a positive way haunted by her memory in a way that fuels him to be who he needs to be to with that great power comes great responsibility and he's got a new reason to live that way. And so unlike what we have from the comic book where he's now hell bent on vengeance, no, he's worked through that and he's better because of it. Even though he's lost something, someone so important, I think he's gained something equally as, as well. Well said. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it floors me. It totally destroys me every time. And I love that you point out. I mean, you're right. It's the thing is that it's hers. It, she's an equal part of everything that takes place in this moment. She's not an unwitting victim. She's not someone who a villain went after specifically to find Peter and hurt him. She's there because she ran up and drove her car to him after getting out of his webbing. And she screams at him and she says, this is my choice. Mine. Okay? And then she stays. Because she has something to offer and a way to help. And she's there because she wanted to be there. And that that totally changes the landscape of the tragedy, like you said, I think. It allows you to you know, not be any less torn up about it, but to have a different sense of its impact positively on the character of Spider-Man and Peter Parker going forward in his life. Absolutely. One more small thing about that is I like that we don't get a little dialogue before she dies, that we don't get this, Peter, it was supposed to be this way or some of that. He has to deal with that moment that the last line, the last word that he had with her happened, what, three or four minutes before and that we don't have closure. So we feel that tension with him and we weep with him because he's not able to say goodbye the way he wants to. The fact that it happened so suddenly, the fact that he couldn't finish what he needed to, it's just, it's awful, but it's, it's, it's beautiful at the same time because it's very real. That it's also, it's also incredibly well shot by the way. Like it is one of the most painful scenes, not only because of the death, but because of the manner. And I think using the slow-mo him navigating the different pieces of falling a tower as it's crumbling with his web shooting through in this perfect trajectory like basically the difficulty of him even getting to have the opportunity to save her to then having it ripped away like it is it's it's expertly done and i think it is the highlight for sure of the movie in a very sad terrible sense <laughs> well let's try to leave on a higher note because that's going to finish it up with uh, this episode of feeling film Coming up this week, we will be dropping our next episode a little bit early. Netflix is releasing the once theatrical-bound Lovebirds on Friday, and you'll have our thoughts on that same day. Also, our donor pick for this month is coming your way 
as well as the aforementioned bonus content for our patrons. So you want to be on the lookout for that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.